Still here in the Drive Hebler.com studio. I'm James Boyd alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison on the ones and twos. We talked a lot throughout that first hour about the NFL and Jonathan Taylor and quarterbacks and Anthony Richardson, but now we're going to pivot over to the other team in Indianapolis, the Indiana Pacers, and their star, Tyrese Halliburton. And somebody's got a close-up look at him throughout Team USA play so far is Sam Gordon of the Las Vegas Journal Review. So, Sam, how you doing, my man? Uh, I'm doing well. Appreciate you guys having me. How you doing? I'm doing good. Appreciate you coming on, man. Shout out to my boy Andy for setting this up. Uh, when you see him next time, tell him I said what's up. That's my guy. Absolutely. But um, we'll start with, obviously, Tyrese. He had a pretty big game in that exhibition opener. So what would you think of his performance and what type of flavor he gives Team USA? Maybe perhaps a different flavor than anybody else. Yeah, I think first and foremost, you nailed it, right? He's fantastic with that second unit. And one thing they were really able to do, Team USA with Tyrese Halliburton out there, is they pushed the pace. I mean, they got up and down, getting in transition. I think the role he has, and understandably so, right? He's playing with way better players, some of the best players in the world. It's a lot more of a role as a, as a distributor. He doesn't have to worry about getting his own offense uh, like he does with Indy. He doesn't have to worry about being the primary scorer and also distributing. He's got guys all over the floor that can score the ball with him. So the pace he brings, uh, obviously, when, when he wants to score, uh, there are going to be opportunities that present themselves. We know he's a three-level scorer that can shoot from the perimeter, that can get to the basket, and that has a fantastic feel for the game. And that was kind of all on display, uh, except since the scoring uh, the other night. So he was excellent in transition. It seems like he's having a really good time after the game, just kind of discussed you know, what a luxury it is that he gets to focus on distributing as opposed to some of the scoring uh, that he has to do in Indy. And, uh, you know, really presents, I think, a different look when he's out there as opposed to Jalen Brunson, who's, you know, a little bit more methodical in a half court in terms of the way he likes to break defenses down. But uh, a lot of ways this Team USA uh, can beat you. And with, with Halliburton the other night, it was out in the open court uh, with him picking him apart with his precise passing. Yeah, we've seen a lot of that here watching the Pacers. He's very much a get-it-and-go type of player. But on those same lines, how much do you think his style of play fits with the philosophy that Steve Kerr has had throughout Team USA basketball, but also with the Golden State Warriors, which is obviously to move the basketball. You have your focal point in Steph Curry, obviously. But they're a very you know ball-movement-oriented team, it seems like. Yeah, you know, without question. And I think you kind of saw that play out uh, the other night in, in the exhibition game. You know, obviously with Tyrese, you know, part of that, the big picture overall, there was very few sticky kind of ball-dominant possessions. Not to say that there weren't a few where, you know, guys <laughs> would isolate a little bit. Of course, that's going to happen, especially, you know, in the exhibition setting. But for the most part, I was super impressed with the way the ball got side to side, uh, the patience that Team USA uh, exhibited when they were in the half court, and, and just kind of the willingness uh, to find the right matchup in the right play at the, the right place in time. In terms of Tyrese Halliburton, I think in, in, in terms of his fit on this particular team, he's playing with Bobby Portis and some of the smaller lineups. But when Paolo Boncaro's in there at center, those guys can move. Those guys can play and get up and down in position as well. And then you're going to have shooters out there with Mikel Bridges, you know, Cam Johnson, Anthony Edwards can obviously shoot the ball, whoever's out there. So I really think it's a well-constructed roster, right? Not the Olympic roster we're going to see. Not, of course, you know, the, the quote-unquote A team. But for, for, but for the group that they have out there, it makes sense with the way basketball is played in 2023. You have multiple lead ball handlers that bring different styles. You have switchability uh, versatility defensively on the wing and you have a you know you know a modern kind of three and d big uh that can protect the rim and jaron jackson jr so for, for halliburton and uh for jalen brunson and guys that get to make the decisions about where the ball goes anthony edwards off the reeves to a degree uh a lot of uh, a lot of tools around them in terms of 
uh, the skill sets of the players that they're playing with. The roster makes a ton of sense in the ball. You, you have to imagine Steve Kerr is pretty pleased with the way this ball, the ball moved the other night. Sam Gordon with us on the Fan Midday Show, sports columnist for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. You can follow him on Twitter at BySamGordon. Sam, when you look at this roster, I know there's only one game in, but there's been a number of different practices that have happened in their training camp, if you will, in Las Vegas that's now ended. As we get further along in these exhibitions in the lead-up to the FIBA World Cup, how much variation do you anticipate in the starting five? Yeah, good question. I, I think, um, I, I mean, Steve Kerr was, was, was uh, you know, I think pretty open afterwards in that, look, this is the group that worked for now. We might make some changes. I will see. I, I don't necessarily see any reason right now to, to make a ton of changes that starting five. I think the, the, the big move later in training camp, you know, towards the end was, was putting Anthony Edwards uh, with that starting group. Uh, in, you know, joining Jalen Brunson, Mikel Bridges, Brandon Ingram, uh, and then Jaron Jackson Jr., and he, uh, the other night, I, I think really, I mean, it was a close game in the first half, right? An exhibition game. Don't think you necessarily saw the best effort from Team USA. And Anthony Edwards in the second half, really in that third quarter, set the tone with his defensive uh, this defensive intensity, his pressure on the ball, his physicality, and, and something that uh, the curve spoke very highly of after the game. So moving him into the starting lineup, I think, is, is kind of the last big chess piece, the last big move uh, until, you know, we might see, unless there's, I guess, additional struggles, throughout the rest of the exhibition slate. they got four more exhibition games until the World Cup actually begins uh, towards the end of the month. But, but right now, the lineup they have, I think it's the right combination of, you know, again, switchability and versatility on the defensive end, shooting, ball handling, uh, athleticism, uh, and then size too, right? Maybe not the biggest lineup, but, but Edwards in the, in, the, in the starting lineup gives you uh, like a bigger body on the perimeter in terms of the strength and his ability to, to pressure and guard different kinds of, of guards and wings. So uh, that starting group looked good, and, and, the, and the second unit looked good with, with Halliburton in there kind of leading the charge and really pushing the pace. So a lot of different styles the way uh, that, this team, that this team can play, and we saw both of them, you know, a couple of them on display the other night, uh, depending on the group that was out there on the floor. So, Sam, you don't have to snitch, but have you seen Tyrese trying to recruit? Because we know (laughs) (laughs) that some of these Team USA gatherings usually lead to nice tandems down the line. So, I mean, wink, wink. uh, Is he getting along well with his teammates? Uh, I would say it would certainly seem so. It would certainly seem to be the case. Um, He's a guy whose game is obviously, I I mean, it it sells itself, right? Who wouldn't want to play with a point guard that moves the ball like that, that can score like that, and that looks to get his teammates uh, involved. And and overall, the chemistry of this group is is really good. It's a a youthful group. I think the youngest team, one of the youngest teams that Team USA has ever sent into a major international competition, certainly in quite some time since – uh, professionals started playing with Team USA, but but the vibes, the chemistry is is fantastic, and and certainly at the epicenter of that uh, is Tyrese Halliburton, who you know his lighthearted personality was on display. I think kind of throughout the course of the week, and certainly after the game, after the performance he had. So these guys are having a lot of fun, and I would certainly not be surprised. Being again, it's it's a young crop of players, a lot of future stars of the league. If, if there's some conversations being had about making some things happen down the road. Last one for me on the basketball front, but what has it been like this summer to be sort of the hub for so much basketball attention? Obviously, we talked about Team USA being out there right now. You have Victor Wembanyama in summer league, you know, and obviously all the hype around him, Scoot Henderson, others, and then also the Aces, who are having arguably the most dominant season of any professional sports team ever. So, what has it been like to sort of float around from each different facility and see so much um, high-level basketball, men's and women's? Yeah, no. 
just it's it's just been fantastic, right? And, and it you know inherently makes a ton of sense with with all the you know the the kind of. Uh, the gyms, the, the the hotels, from, from a, a logistical standpoint, what better city to, to host all these kind of events in the summer? And then just kind of the timing. It's been one thing after another with the Aces being the, the steady, you know, the steady kind of uh, uh, buoy to, to buoy basketball in the city with how historically great they've been. Uh, a number of future Hall of Famers, Asia Wilson, Chelsea Gray, Jackie Young. Kelsey Plum, Becky Hammond getting inducted into the Hall of Fame this weekend. Uh, and then, like you mentioned, you know, the, the different events, Summer League, USA Basketball, of course, the, you know, the club basketball scene, very rich here, uh, a lot of high-level high school basketball tournaments. So this is a basketball town. I mean, everything's here, and I would just, you know, get the sense that it's only a matter of time before an NBA franchise joins the city's, you know, emerging collective of professional sports teams. So uh, it's a great time in the city to be a basketball fan. It's a great time, even if you're not in the city, to come from out of town and check out some basketball. No shortage of options. And, you know, the world's greatest players have pretty much been on display, uh, men's and women's, like you said, on a consistent basis the last couple months. You said my question, my, my next follow-up there, Sam. How far away are we from expansion? Because it feels inevitable. It feels like whenever that does happen, Las Vegas is going to have the first seat at the table. How far away are we from an NBA franchise in Sin City? Yeah, I would. I mean, I don't know if there's necessarily a hard timeline. I know the NBA wants to wait until they get their new media rights deals mm-hmm. done and they're out of the CBAs done. Yeah, they, you know, negotiations for that um, can be, begin coming up here. Uh, I think in 2024. So once that gets done. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they move, you know, if that, if they move pretty fast on, on terms of getting something announced. Now that being said, uh, an arena is still an issue. You know, T-Mobile Arena definitely a viable place to play. Uh, there are NBA locker rooms, but that's not that's not the preference for anybody involved. The Golden Knights, MGM included, could that work in the short term? Sure, but uh, there is the Oak, the Oakview Group is working on you know building a ten billion dollar um, project that would have a I think a one billion dollar arena. Uh, over here a little bit south of the Strip. That would be a potential place where they could play that group responsible for the renovations of Key Arena up there uh, in Seattle and the development of several other arenas, you know, pro and college throughout the country. So it's just it's just a matter of time. Uh, I would I would say 2030, but, you know, have a team playing by then, I think is relatively realistic with an announcement sometime in the next couple of years. And we've even heard now Adam Silver go public with, you know, Seattle and Vegas. It feels inevitable. The city has shown that it can buoy uh, pro sports, professional basketball, uh, and and it's it's again just kind of based on you know what we just talked about. All the basketball here uh, makes sense on a number of levels. Franchise to this market. Sam Gordon with us, taking some time on the Fan Midday Show, covers all things sports for the Las Vegas Review Journal. Uh, going back to Team USA for just a second, Sam, you alluded to it in one of your answers earlier. This is clearly not the team that's going to represent the United States in the Olympics, but but it is very much an audition, I would argue, for every player on this roster right now to try to take a step closer to earning a spot on Team USA in 2024. When you look at the roster right now, who is this moment most important for? I mean, I could easily see somebody like Anthony Edwards or or Jaron Jackson Jr. making it comfortably as as a piece within Team USA next year. When you look at the rest of the roster, though, who is this stretch of time at the World Cup most important for to making the Olympic team? 
Oh, geez, that is a uh, that is a um, tremendous question. I, I think you you know the, the guy like you said, Anthony Edwards. This feels to me um, at this juncture like he's kind of ready to take on take on the, the the face you know take on the role of the face of this team. He was excellent the other night. He has the, obviously the personality for it. And, and when you take a look at this roster, out of the twelve guys on the team, I think has the highest upside in terms of being you know. A, a, a number one on a championship team in the NBA. Still only 22 years of age. And that's obviously no disrespect to any of his Team USA teammates, but he has the highest upside. And this, I think, from 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 that standpoint, I think this could catapult him. This this can be you know part of the runway uh, that helps launch him from a very good player into you know a, a potentially very great player uh, down the road, right? But but I think uh, there's the backup big spot. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that settles, right? I, you know, you, you think a Team USA is traditionally the 12 best players in, in the world, but that hasn't been the case. It's obviously a lot of, you know, the, the best American players, but in previous iterations of USA basketball, there's been a guy like Bobby Portis, right? Think about Deshaun Prince on the Redeem team, right? A, a high-level role player that does a number of little things well. So I think he's in a position where, again, maybe not the first big you necessarily think of, but he's a guy that was excellent the other night, does all the little things, uh, that, that might be able to play his way into potentially contention for a roster spot in Team USA moving forward. I think Paolo Bontero, another guy, right, just just coming off of his first year, uh, the rookie of the year uh, performance that he had in the NBA this past season. What does this look like for him in terms of being part of Team USA long term? He got a lot of minutes in backup big spots, uh, and, and this you know, Team USA could this be something that really helps accelerate his development as well. I think kind of big picture, Mikel Bridges, uh, Jalen Brunson, Tyrese Halliburton, those are guys that fit the FIBA model, that fit the Team USA model, and certainly guys I think that are you know probably uh, going to have the opportunity to earn their way back uh, next summer for the Olympics. But for the young guys in the second unit, it's an opportunity to prove that they can fit the international uh, model of play, that they can play with stars and, and find a role with stars because there's going to be, you know, you would imagine Jason Tatum, Devin Booker, maybe Steph Curry, other guys, other high-level guys on the team next year. Who can play around those guys and give up maybe parts of their game uh, that they would have, uh, that they would go to in the NBA to play to, to play uh, with other stars in FIBA. That's what I think we're gonna we're gonna learn here in the next few weeks. So big opportunity for everybody involved, uh, like you mentioned, uh, but especially guys in the second unit. I think they have an opportunity to earn their way back on that Olympic team next year. Sam, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about Josh Jacobs because whenever I mention his name here in Indianapolis, it's in conjunction with Jonathan Taylor. So I know you're not like on that beat every day, but what is the sense around Jacobs and his status for the team? Because as we know, the season isn't getting further away. It's creeping closer. Yeah, um, fortuitous timing with your question. I'm just pulling up here um, to, to Raiders practice. Let's they got go. Practices the next couple of days. <laughs> so the, the primer before the before the game, before the practices with the Niners. Uh, but look, he's missed. It, it, it's just he's the. I mean, he was a rushing champion last year. He was a captain. Uh, he's a leader in the locker room. He's well liked. He's got the kind of personality that that guys connect with. It makes guys feel at ease. And you heard Devontae Adams come out publicly say they miss him. They, they, they wish he was there. That, uh, I think, whether guys are going to say it or not, I mean, how could you not want, you know, arguably the best player on the team and the best running back uh, in the league in camp when you're, you know, you're trying to set a culture, you're trying to win games, so on and so forth. Uh, that being said, everybody knows this is a business. Guys are able to compartmentalize what, what his situation is and focus on you know going going through training camp and preparing for the start of the season but it's going to be interesting what this what this thing looks like i mean look i expect him to come back i think you know, there's no real no reason for him 
to be in training camp. He hasn't signed the tender. He's not getting fined. He's going to make all his money so long as he shows up for week one. So if you're Josh Jacobs, you know, no real incentive to go to training camp, especially, you know, given kind of what the dynamic of these negotiations have been like. So I'd expect him to be there, but you're playing with fire. I think big picture, uh, forget necessarily the position or anything like that, but when you're not taking care of a captain, a leader in the locker room, somebody that's well-respected, and, and, and even if you give him a little bump, uh, is, are there going to be long-term hand, like handicapping cap things with this team, with where they're at, given how many holes they have elsewhere and how far away they are from serious contention? I'm not necessarily sure you would. So I get it. I get it from both sides. It's the reality of the business. It's the situation that we're in. Running backs, guards, inside linebackers, you know, fullbacks a long time ago, certain positions, you know, just the value changes uh, as the game changes. But – 1,600-yard guy last year, first-team All-Pro, only 25 years old, been extremely durable. Uh, makes all the sense in the world why his teammates would want him out there. And, and until he's there, definitely a, a void in practice, again, without one of the best uh, players in the league. But we'd expect him to be there week one. Too much money on the table. We've seen Saquon Barkley, Tony Pollard, other guys you know, show up and kind of understand the situation. We'd expect him uh, to follow suit. And then at 26, potentially set him up for, a, for another big payday um, somewhere else, depending on how things go this season. Well, look, Sam, really appreciate the time, man. Have fun at Raiders practice. Hopefully they have some AC going. Is it outdoor? I mean, the heat out there is different, so I don't know. But be safe, my friend. Oh, is it is it outdoor? Just out of curiosity, is it outdoor? Yeah, they mostly practice outdoors. I mean, sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll pivot to the indoor facility. But, uh, but practices for training camp are, are usually really – today's a little later – but usually 8.30 in the morning to try and beat the heat. And I say the key word there is try, because even at 8.30 in the morning, it's almost 100 degrees out here. So they two bucket hats. Around it and it's just, yeah, the season right around the corner, hopefully uh, hopefully cool, cooler days ahead. All right, Sam. Well, next time I talk to you, please don't melt in between then. So I uh, appreciate you coming on, man, and you have a good one. Uh, I, I won't melt. I appreciate it, guys. We'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, and take Sam. care. All right, that was Sam Gordon, Las Vegas uh, Review Journal, sports columnist, kind of just floats around, does a bunch of things for them. A lot of great work. Still here in the DriveHuber.com studio, I'm James Boyd alongside Jimmy Cook and Eddie Garrison. We're going to finally get to the story we alluded to earlier from Alec Lewis of The Athletic, who we have on the line. He's the Vikings reporter. He actually took a dip into Colts land and uh, was down there in Florida with Anthony Richardson from what the story told me. So, Alec, first, before we even get to the story, how do I sell my company, our company, on sending me to Florida for stories? Because I'm very down for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, first, thanks for having me. I apologize for missing earlier. It's, uh, I was, I, I, I'm, the time zone thing is like the bane of my existence and has been forever. Um, so it was good to see that I'm still, I still haven't learned my time zone. Um the Florida thing was it was really random. Um, and like on a serious note, I, I wasn't uh, sure initially if I was going to go down there. But the more I had conversations with people um, for the story and within the quarterback space, the more I was like, you know what, I want to go see this. And and reality is like I didn't even know Anthony was going to be down there that day. I thought it could be Brock Purdy. I thought it could be John Wolford. I thought it could be any number of guys who I talked to or interacted with for that story. Uh, but turns out I showed up to the field and then, uh, Anthony walks up with the box of Jordan cleats and, uh, and we're ready to roll. So it was fun. Yeah. I was going to say Hercules approached you and you were like, Oh wow. Yeah. He plays for the Colts. <laughs> so, um, Alec, we, I read through the piece, thought it was fantastic. And, 
one thing I want to kind of start with is how have you seen this sort of like technology driven data and, and stuff kind of manifest itself into the NFL? Because I mean, if we're talking about quarterbacks of this generation that's starting out, I would say, you know, the Anthony Richardson of the world, Bryce Youngs, they're probably more used to this. But throughout your research, how have you seen it kind of pivot to the point where they're using so much data and, you know, uh, high-level technology to track every part of a a player's movement to maximize it on the football field? Yeah, it's a great question. And so, I mean, like, to to walk you through it and to walk the listeners through it, so I covered baseball for three years. I covered the Kansas City Royals, um, which was a very traditional, old-school, not forward-thinking data minded organization but throughout the course of that coverage like i i was fascinated by like the question of what are the teams that are most forward thinking in terms of player development doing and it, it led me down a a space of biomechanics and biomechanical analysis so i learned a lot through that and then as i as i started covering the vikings last year and then hit this summer i was curious like what does the quarterback development space look like and it turns out Football is way behind baseball even uh, in terms of how they're integrating data and biomechanical analysis in player development. I thought that was so fascinating. I'm like, with how much money this industry is, that is in this industry and with how much is on the line for these teams and these players, the fact that they are behind even baseball to me was kind of mind-boggling. Um, and so it, it, it led me down the rabbit hole to try to find, like, who is – using this data and how are they doing it? And, and I guess to put it simplistically, like the people who are doing this at the highest level are realizing that you can, uh, through motion capture analysis, figure out how a guy's body moves. And then I think the more we know about how the body moves, the more we know about how guys generate force and, and, and how you train the body to, to pattern effectively to be able to move efficiently and, and operate the right way. And, and that obviously led me to, to the people I spent time with. And, and I think for Colts folks to know that Anthony Richardson has been working with these people who are at the forward, at probably the most forward-thinking level of the space has been fascinating. And I think the Colts in general, as a team and organization, have brought in people to, to um, experiment this. And they're one of very few teams within the NFL that have. I mean, the Philadelphia Eagles, I would say, are probably the most forward-thinking in the space. I think the Baltimore Ravens are there. I think the Los Angeles Rams are getting there. But the Colts are, are only early adopters in this, and I think the ramifications of that are hard to even peg as you think down the road. You know, Alec, I don't disagree with you, but poor baseball, like the – Football has taken over long ago as the top sport in America, but now baseball has become a warning sign of, well, if they're doing this, then we are we are far behind where we need to be. Um, as I read the piece, I kept looking back because I had seen uh, a couple weeks ago, I'd gone through the quarterback series and... You know, I've, I've, I'm a Chiefs fan, so I followed Mahomes, so I knew about his offseason regiment. But you referenced Bobby Stroop in the overall piece on the stuff Anthony Richardson was doing in regards to different trainers that have looked at off-platform throws and training your body in those stress-inducing situations. How similar is what fans might have seen if they watched the quarterback series with Mahomes and Stroop to what Anthony Richardson and what, what clients here in this story are taking through their training regimen? 
Yeah, I think the main difference, I would say, with, with what Patrick Mahomes has done with Bobby Strew is Bobby moved up from Texas where he is based to Kansas City, and he lives there, and he has somewhat of a synergy and kind of an access to the team and to Patrick Mahomes at a level that I don't believe Anthony Richardson has with Tom Gormley, who he works with in Florida, and Will Hewlett, who he works with in in Florida. And so I think that would be the biggest difference. But I I will say this, and this is how I would describe it to, like, the layman's person. Um, And we talk about baseball, but it really goes, like, arguably the most forward-thinking sport in the space in in terms of movement and enhancing uh, a a guy's skill set is golf. And I know that might be weird for people to think, but – what golfers have done for a long time because they are their own entity and not working with, with a specific team is they have surrounded themselves with their caddy, with their swing coach, with their putting coach, with their body guy, with their – and so I think what you've seen in Patrick Mahomes – I mean, obviously Tom Brady worked with Tom House and, and Patrick Mahomes has done this with Bobby Stroop, but the more time has passed, the more I think all of these quarterbacks at the highest level have realized – that they have to create a team around them of experts. And that is the throwing expert, that is the body movement expert, that is in some capacity the the cognitive playbook side of, of, of reading defenses and having an expert, uh, the psychologist. I mean, her cousins visit with the visits with the psychologist. And so I think Bobby Stroop and what people saw in that quarterback series is a good foundation for, I think, how this thing is going to trend for for guys who play this position at the highest level. Now, to pivot away from the quarterback position, obviously your franchise gap, grabbed headlines when they released Dalvin Cook, who is still not employed at the moment, could be very soon, obviously. But how have you seen Minnesota sort of attack that position, knowing that we're going to have to make some changes, obviously, to keep their core intact and to try to keep building the team towards what they hope will be a fruitful, more fruitful playoff run this season. But what have they done to sort of make up for, you know, a loss that they obviously feel that they can't make up for? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's Dalvin's situation, is, I mean, as all, all of these running back situations are, it's, I mean, it's fascinating, and I think they're all very different. I mean, in Dalvin's case, um, I think specifically, I mean, he's, he's kind of a home run hitter who has gotten older, has taken a lot of hits. Uh, and I think the team just felt as if rather than the home running, home run hitting ability on the ground, they, they, they are seeking efficiency. I think they believe if they can get in second and six, if they can get in third and two, the playbook is more open for the team to, to, to I mean, it, it keeps stress off of Kirk Cousins, off of Justin Jefferson to, uh, to, to, to shoulder the burden. And so I think while Dalvin Cook, it, it, I mean, can obviously run the ball effectively still, I think they felt like Alexander Madison, who has been the backup here for a while, would, would maybe fit the more bouldering type of back who would get you four yards every carry, but 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 not have the home run hitting ability. And so I think um, that's where they, 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 they've lied. I mean, I think Dalvin specifically has still not found a team and I think it, it, it is in part because his representatives and his camp have been seeking a contract worth an, an amount that teams have not been willing to pay. I mean, I know other teams are interested in Dalvin. I know, the, for example, the Miami Dolphins are very interested in Dalvin, but not at the price tag that he's seeking. I think that was really what, what, what in the end, for the Vikings, it was like we, we, if we're building this team, 
with short-term flexibility, which has been their their conversation, that they had to do that with a running back that was uh, less expensive than what Dalvin Cook was seeking at that time. Alec Lewis with us. Covers the Minnesota Vikings for The Athletic, and of course you can find his national story, building the perfect NFL quarterback, meet the mysterious private coaches on the cutting edge that dives into Anthony Richardson, a handful of other quarterbacks that are going through this unique and, and different approach to make sure their bodies are right and training themselves to succeed at the next level. Alec, James brought up an interesting point that for like teenagers or, or high school level kids, there's no doubt that having this type of developmental tools or personal trainer is a is a big hurdle in terms of accessibility from an income standpoint for the average yeah. person to be able to do that so i don't know that we'll ever reach those points but for rookie quarterbacks or or, or other athletes in the nfl that want to take care of their bodies in such a forward approach or go this route that has worked for other NFL quarterbacks, how far away are we from it becoming commonplace for shortly after getting drafted or shortly after having enough money to play with, so to speak, that all NFL quarterbacks or a majority of them have trainers like this or that take this approach, maybe not that have the access that Stroop does with Mahomes, but that are as active in the development of the quarterback as we see with some examples in the NFL right now yeah I think I think we're pretty close because I think the more information that exists that uh, like the the Netflix documentary that shows Bobby Stroop's impact like stories that that like the the one featuring Tom Gormley who works with Anthony Richardson I think the more uh parents of kids will be seeking out this type of information like I think about there's a kid in Florida named Colin Hurley who is uh, he's won two state championship high school quarterback four star committed to LSU and his dad as as most quarterback dads can tend to be is maniacal in his pursuit of wanting to to find the optimal situation for his son to have the most success at the position and so I think the more uh, information that exists about the, the benefit of how a body moves in terms of trying to throw the football effectively, the more you'll see uh, the highest level seek out. I mean, I can also say that there are things that, that are – there are people and certain platforms that are in the process of being built to, to help democratize the space and make it more accessible for the people and, and younger kids who can't – access the highest level, which I think is, is obviously a really good thing as you, you, you want to lift the lift all boats for everybody. I mean, John Wolfer, who's an NFL quarterback with the Buccaneers has partnered with, with Tom Gormley, who I wrote about to create kind of a platform um, to where kids can, can video themselves. And, and they're in the process of that. I know Greg Rose, who, who works for the Titleist Performance Institute is creating a certification for coaches to help, uh, football coaches and quarterback coaches train guys better and, and think more about body mechanics. So I think that the space, is, as you can probably hear in, in how I'm describing the things that are going on, it just feels so untapped. And I think it transcends just the quarterback position. Like I had a conversation with somebody about pass rushers in general, and they're like, for years, coaches have told pass rushers that they have to be in these positions to attack the quarterbacks. Like, well, what if their body doesn't move efficiently to, through those specific techniques? What if, if, if they, they place their leg in a different way, they could actually get to the quarterback faster, even if that's not what has been taught for years? And so, again, 
the more I think about the space, the more I think there's just a lot to be untapped in terms of player development and football. And I think the teams that are most forward-thinking in that space will probably separate themselves as time moves on. Well, all I heard was that my dad failed me by not <laughs> getting me a quarterback coach. But, um, Alec, look, man, I appreciate you coming on. I'll have to get your thoughts next time on that debacle that happened last year in Minnesota, which was the most unbelievable game I've ever been a part of. But um, I won't bring it up too much, I guess, for the listeners out there who are still scarred. But uh, going forward, my man, you keep doing great work, and I'll make sure to keep uh, – actually, I'll reconvene with AR to see what he's saying about you know these quarterback coaches he's had. So uh, thanks, man, for the assist. Yeah, no, thank you guys for having me anytime, James. You keep it up, too. It's been fun to, uh, to, to read and watch. I think that that team and that offense is going to fascinate me. Um, I, I would say I've heard really good things as well about the development of Gardner Minshew, um, and, and he kind of aligns with some of this base as well in a way that hopefully you can tap into a little bit. But, no, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. As far as the Colts game last year, it will probably exist as the craziest I've ever seen probably for the rest of my life. But things happen when uh, situations were what they were last year. Um, So, yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, keep in touch, Dave. All right, man, you have a good one. That was uh, Alec Lewis covers the Vikings for the Athletic. Inside the DriveHumor.com studios, Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, along with Eddie Garrison. It is the Fan Midday Show. Around this time last week, we were starting to see the back and forth of will they or won't they in regards to the Pac-12 conference and how much power Arizona, potentially to the Big 12, would hold with what would happen with Oregon and Washington and who would make the first move. And maybe there's a last-minute media rights deal. And then ultimately, (laughs) the Hunters pounced on the hunted. (laughs) The hunters pounced on the hunted and the Big Ten got their riches in terms of two new members and the Big 12 got their riches in terms of three new members. One of our favorites, he covers IU athletics as well as college sports at large for the Indy Star. Zach Osterman joins us now. Zach, first off, thanks so much for the time as always. And I, I read your piece regarding where the lessons of what just happened with the Pac-12 can be learned for member schools of not just the Big Ten, but of the SEC anywhere of, if it can, ha- if it can happen to them, it can happen to you. I, I want to get both your takeaways on this, because my initial reaction was a selfish one. If the owners are going to be selfish, as an Indiana alum, I'm going to be happy to an extent that my school is not outside looking in right now. The Big Ten was forward-thinking, and they were aggressive. They are alive. The Pac-12 is dead. But the other side of that coin, as you mentioned in your article, is I don't know if it would necessarily hit Indiana or Purdue, but it could hit a number of teams in this conference with the next wave of you're in now, but you might not be in three, four, five years from now. Yeah, I think... Uh, and, and I probably didn't do as good of a job of kind of elucidating what I was trying to say in that, that piece is, is, is that you mentioned. Um, you know, for a while, we kind of, people like me would talk about conference expansion, realignment, you know, contraction, um, consolidation, whatever term you want to use. And we would, you know, say that it was about TV reach. It was about media reach. Could you add more big time uh, television markets? Could you add, obviously, maybe more recently, 
meaningful brands when you see the SEC poach Texas and Oklahoma, when you see Indiana, or excuse me, not Indiana, the Big Ten, forgive me, um, poach, obviously, in particular, USC and UCLA. But these all are kind of symptoms of the wider issue, which is that for a while now, college athletics has just kind of been beholden to essentially what its major television partners tell it either in word or in action they want. Um, and you would understand why college athletics would, would want to strengthen those relationships. That's the single largest revenue stream for these conferences. The problem is that you start to get to a place where eventually, as with anything, there, there becomes a point of negative return. There are those, those television contracts aren't climbing further and further up um, the way they once were. Cord cutting has cut into cable revenues. Streamers haven't really filled the gap from a, a, a revenues perspective and a consumer spending perspective. So you're now at a place where, and we saw this with the Pac-12 try, having to try and take its um, its its uh, its media rights to Apple and Apple TV. You're in a place where either you have to do something risky, like bet on streaming, or you have to. Um, basically take the money from someone else. And that's what we saw happen with the Big 12 and the Big 10 last week. The problem is, if you follow that line of thinking through to its conclusion, let's make everything more streamlined. Let's make everything more efficient. There's not an infinite amount of money to go around the way that it once seemed like there was. Let's just, you know, let's keep trying to trim the fat off the edges as much as we can. At what point do we stop classifying this by conference and saying, well, these conferences are safe and these conferences aren't? And do we maybe see conferences start to wonder if, or or television partners or whomever start to wonder if it's time to streamline out some of the members of some conferences that do not provide as much value, as much inherent sort of, um, you know, efficiency. And that's a really craven way of thinking about college athletics there's an extent to which we've always thought about college sports through the lens of money. Ivy League stadiums were build, building, Ivy League schools were building stadiums in the 40 and 50,000s pre World War II. So let's not act like this was some, this has never been a consideration, but it has gotten to a point where it feels like it is harming the sport and where nobody is fully safe. Zach, when you talk about harming the sport, some of the reactions from athletes who play non-revenue sports I'm sure you've seen them as far as softball and gymnastics or whatever the case may be how have you seen maybe the reaction on the IU side of that and being I guess subject to the decisions that are made primarily for football yeah I think that's I mean that's there's been a lot more discussion of that basically really just in the last two days I mean Gene Smith came up with came out today talking I think in his retirement announcement about how he thinks there needs to be a new structure for governing college football. I think a lot of people were intrigued and I of course it makes it makes too much sense to actually work, but by this sort <laughs> of idea that Kelly had about basically separating separating football from all the other sports and just playing a conferenceless football schedule among the power five schools. And essentially his point being travel's not as big of a deal for football football travel always happens on the weekend anyway it's only once a week the issue you're going to get into you're talking about you know like i think there were some oregon softball players maybe some athletes from rutgers who were both sort of um you know voicing some of these concerns on social media about if i'm if i gotta fly four and a half 
hours play, you know, a weekend softball uh, series, and then I got to fly home. Like, I'm going to be going straight off the plane to class. This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't, you know, I, I, I went to Oregon or wherever because I wanted to be close to my family. Now, all of a sudden, you're telling me I'm going to be playing Illinois and Northwestern and Nebraska and Minnesota. That doesn't make any sense. Um, and I think that, again, what I do wonder because I think it, it, this is something, I mean, Indiana's going to have to grapple with it just the same as anybody else. And you're going to get to a place where, you know, a big part of the reason, at least one of the major reasons why you are seeing, frankly, this dash for money is that, number one, schools recognize that the sort of, you know, the, 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 the cable and TV revenue sort of streams that had really exploded over the previous 10 to 15 years are starting to shrink again. And so you're trying to get into the conference with the best, you know, the best position for a, a strong new media deal. And also you want access to the college football playoff. That is going to be one of the areas that uh, of revenue that opens up next because there is such intense interest in it because it's obviously expanded once. And I think we would all be shocked if it wasn't expanded again at some point in the not so distant future. Um, you know, let's say then I forget what its current term is, but let's say the next, you know, five to 10 years maximum. And you have potentially a really large new expense coming down the pike, which is sharing revenues, particularly television revenues with student athletes. And that's, where I think in particular a lot of this is coming from is, is schools essentially saying we have to make sure we've got as much money as we can because it's not like you're going to start from zero when you start sharing revenues if that is what happens. You're going to have to figure out how to cut something else. Well, the problem is if in the effort to maximize your TV deals and all that, you keep adding schools that require a, a ballooning travel schedule or ballooning recruiting budgets because you're going to have to go to different parts of the country to recruit athletes or whatever it might be, then all of a sudden, at what point are you just sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul? Um, I think it is interesting to me that the, the sort of growing chorus of people that have been calling for this idea that if football is going to govern if football is going to be the catalyst for such a dramatic departure from what we would consider sort of like recognizable college athletics, then maybe it is time to find a way while still obviously allowing football to make the money that helps, you know, well, it's far and away the biggest revenue generating sport in the football bowl subdivision, um, you know, finding a way for football from a governance perspective, from a postseason perspective, even to some extent probably from a, a television and media rights perspective to go and do its own thing and allow some of these, you know, basically certainly everything that's non-revenue, but probably even a sport like men's basketball where you have to play a lot of weeknight games and it's not going to be practical to play, you know, 8 p.m. Pacific time in Los Angeles and then get on a plane at 11.45 or let's say 5 p.m. Pacific time in Los Angeles, get on a plane at 8.45 Pacific time, which is 11.45, let's say, you know, Bloomington time, and fly four and a half hours home and get home at 5 a.m. That's just, that's not practical at all. Um, maybe we find a way to essentially let football be and do its own thing that doesn't harm the rest of the structure. I don't know exactly how to do that. If I was smart enough to, Lord knows I'd... I'd take it somewhere it would be more useful but um it's 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 really complicated i'm not gonna lie 
Zach Osmer with us, covers college athletics and IU athletics for the Indianapolis Star. Nice to have to take some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Zach, it felt like you maybe alluded to this in your piece, and if you didn't and I misread it, then, then I just want to get your opinion on this flatly. There has been concerns about as these conference realignments occur that maybe down the line, whether that's seven years from now at the end of the rights deal, whether that's sooner than that, that some trimming of the fat might occur. Do you feel like that's possible? And if so, when I look at this, and maybe it's because I'm I live here and I'm I'm blinded by it, I don't view IU and Purdue as obvious casualties. I look at Rutgers, I look at Nebraska, I look at Northwestern, I look at maybe Maryland as maybe if trimming of the fat was to happen in these conferences, specifically the Big Ten, that that would be the choice. Now, they might look at IU and Purdue and say the same thing about those schools. I I don't know, but am I wrong in thinking that, that there's some type of safety for IU and Purdue down the line? And what do you think about the idea of fat trimming occurring at some point within conference realignment? I mean, I, I think it is more likely than not. I think, and, and again, this is where I, I think I was, this is something I was really trying to say in what I wrote, and it didn't, it didn't, quite, um, didn't quite come through. But the point I was trying to make is if an entire conference can be, you know, wiped out by this, as I think we all sort of feel like is probably going to be the, the sort of final determining fate of the Pac-12, um, then there's absolutely no reason to think that there are any sacred cows. And again, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier. If a, you know, if maybe not necessarily through words, but certainly maybe a combination of words and action, actions, your you know your, your your broadcast partners, your media partners, your TV partners are kind of saying, well, we don't. You know, the the market essentially said it didn't want the Pac-12. Dean Smith said today that Fox put more money on the table. For the Big Ten, its primary television partner, Fox, is, Fox being the Big Ten's mm-hmm. primary television partner, to add Oregon and Washington without depleting the annual payout for any current Big Ten member. That means Fox was willing to pay money to make something happen that it would have it will have known was going to effectively kneecap the Pac-12. And it's not a huge stretch to say essentially Fox was willing to fund the permanent and, and final undercutting of an entire conference. So what's to say if, you know, these revenues continue to kind of at very least sort of stagnate, grow slowly rather than, you know, that 10, 15 years ago, this was ballooning for everyone. Everyone, every time a new TV deal came up, that, you know, the, that conference got the biggest, richest TV deal in the world because they just took the last two that had been negotiated and said, we want something better than this. And it just kept climbing ever northward. The problem is cable has been cut into by streaming. Streaming has not replaced, you know, basically cord cutters have not replaced in terms of revenues to streaming partners and broadcast partners, the gap that's created by people cutting the cord. And so there's not as much money to go around. What happens if that continues? And at some point, you know, let's say, I don't know, let's just hypothetically say the next casualty is the ACC. And the biggest ACC schools find a way to get out of the, the ACC grant of rights. And then the Big Ten and the SEC and maybe the, maybe the Big 12 divvy up all the ACC schools that have any real agency and the few that don't fall away. At some point, 
this line of thinking gets you to a place where the broadcast partners just keep saying, let's make this more efficient. Let's make this more streamlined. Let's get rid of the, the brands, the schools, the programs, whatever words you want to use that don't help as much, that don't add much to the bottom line. And again, that is heavily driven by football. Basketball is a consideration. March Madness is a, a makes more than a billion dollars annually. No one's going to throw that in the trash. But football is driving the bus here by orders of magnitude. And if the, the approach we're taking is essentially let's just keep cutting and cutting and making this more efficient and making this just a more sort of like efficient moneymaker, at some point they might run out of other people. They might run out of softer targets, and they might start saying to conferences, do you think that there are you know, brands, programs, again, whatever word you want to use, in your own conference that aren't doing much for you? Could they be moved to one side? And to be honest, and, and you know, Indiana fans listening probably won't like me saying this. <laughs> Purdue fans listening certainly won't like me saying this. Indiana and Purdue would not be in particularly strong positions in that case. From football and I standpoint. I want basketball to matter. I, I, I get that, and to an extent it will. But it, it is – this is so football-driven. If we got to a place where, let's say, you were just taking the 32 – best programs in the country and starting some super league. And I have, I have my doubts about that idea for a variety of reasons, but let's say we got there. That is absolutely one of the things that people smarter than me think is on the table with all this, you know, neither Indiana nor Purdue is probably getting into a 32 team league of the, you know, a league of the 32 best college football teams in, in, in the country. Um, certainly college football brands in the country. And that's a scary proposition. And that's where I come back to the idea just, if it can happen to an entire conference, why wouldn't you think it could happen to you? So, Zach, have, do you think we've not seen the last of it, but we're just moving away from like the true traditional rivalries when it comes to college athletics? Because, I mean, that's what I grew up on. That's what I think draws you to college athletics is that you hate that school over there because, you know, they're the rival school. They're right next to you and you see each other all the time. But it's hard to me to fathom a rivalry if you're, you know, on the West Coast, I'm on the East Coast. No, I think that's, I mean, I think a big part of the argument against a lot of this is is not just that we want, you know, that the college fans should want tradition over money or, or college football programs college athletics departments should prioritize tradition over money. It's more the idea that college sports needs to be very careful because to your point, rivalries, you know, a a sense of sort of cultural identity and and regionalism and and parochial quirks. These are the things that have always set college football apart from the NFL, from, you know, major league baseball, from the NBA, like you, you, and, and it all works because you get a little bit of it, you know, at the pro level, you get used to see the best athletes, in whatever sport it is, playing each other all the time. And, you know, and that's why, like, in baseball, we added interleague play. And then this year, you saw baseball move to a, a more fully balanced schedule because the idea was, increasingly, people didn't want that out of professional sports. They just wanted to see the best players playing each other as often as possible. I, I, I was born and raised in Atlanta, and, like, I can tell you when the Angels were in town two weeks ago, everyone was furious that they weren't going to get to see Shohei Otani pitch. So like it, that that is what people want out of co- out of professional sports, and maybe to some extent it's what people want out of college sports. That's what's driven 
that's what drove us toward the BCS to some extent. It is certainly what drove us toward the playoffs and what has prompted an expanded playoffs. So I'm not saying that this isn't this isn't something college sports should embrace at all. But you have to be careful at a certain point that you're not destroying your brand in an attempt to innovate it. And college sports has always been driven in large part by the idea that it gave a certain sense of cultural identity to to people and to places. And you played, you know, if you went to Illinois, you played Northwestern every year. If you went to Indiana, you played Purdue every year. If you went to Michigan, you played Michigan State, you played Ohio State, you played Notre Dame. It mattered not just because people said, oh, it's important to beat Ohio State, but because it was something different than what you got out of being a fan of the Lions or the Tigers or the Red Wings or whoever. And you could basically have both of those things if you if you sanitize or modernize, whatever term you want to use, college, if you professionalize it, frankly, that's probably the best word for it, too much, then I think you start turning people off to a lot of what, you know, what kept people really engaged with college athletics, which is what made it different, which is that sense of familiarity and against that, that that sense of sort of parochial cultural identity. Last thing on my end, Zach, Zach Osterman with us covers college athletics and IU athletics for the Indy star. Before we, we talked about frat, fat trimming earlier from a standpoint though, of still adding and still trying to gobble up as many teams as possible. It would appear at least from national conversations that the big 10 maybe is not done what is next for the conference? I know that there's been rumors of Stanford and Cal, maybe to the ACC. There are rumors about maybe they would try to jump on the Big Ten train a couple months ago. What is next for the conference in terms of expansion? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to say insofar as two weeks ago, nobody thought this was on the table. And then, you know, some of the, you know, the, the, the Pac-12 media deal sort of came to a head and that prompted Washington and Oregon to get scared and kind of come back to the Big Ten and engage at, you know, substantially lower terms than um, than what you would normally expect, just basically to find a safer landing spot. I, I do think, um, you know, it's from the Big Ten's perspective, short term, I think a lot of this is going to be driven by revenues. And, you know, a big part of what, clearly a big part of what made the Washington-Oregon move work was that, A, Washington and Oregon were willing to take greatly reduced shares of the annual media payout through the life of the current deal, which only just started and runs for seven years. So basically, Washington and Oregon were, were prepared to take a seven-year, you know, deep discount on what everybody else in their new conference is going to be getting annually, including USC, USC and UCLA, just to get from the Pac-12 to the Big Ten for financial reasons, competitive reasons, whatever it is. And then the other piece of this, which I think really just kind of emerged today when Gene Smith said it, is Fox was willing to put a little bit of extra money in the pot to cover that, you know, and to, to make that doable for those two schools for the term of this, this media rights deal. I don't think, you know, there are some – there are some – you know, what, what, I don't know, golden geese or whatever term you want to use, whatever cliche you want to use. Notre Dame is obviously the big one. There has been absolutely no mention recently of Notre Dame being interested in the Big Ten. If anything, at the moment, it seems like Notre Dame is, is really prepared to sort of entrench itself in its independence and, and, and back basically its, its long-term plan for revenue growth. Um, but anybody else that was added would need to get to a place where – 
it was obviously financially viable for those schools, but also financially acceptable to the Big Ten. And that, I think, essentially means it's not going to cut into anybody else's revenue stream for the life of this current deal. Now, I'm not saying the Big Ten is not going to add another team for seven years. I do think that this particular round of expansion, you know, last time USC and UCLA was a, a bit of a response to some overtures from the California schools, also a bit of a response to the SEC being aggressive with Oklahoma and Texas. This one, I think, was a lot more prompted basically just by the willingness of Oregon and Washington to come in on greatly reduced shares. Um, and I don't know if there's anybody else out there like that that the Big Ten would be able to go back to its broadcast partners and say, you know, kick us even more money than you already are so we can cover this too. So for the moment, you know, it's, it, it, you've got to have – the schools that are willing to play ball at maybe a lower, a lower, for lack of a more artful term, price point, frankly. And then you've also got to have the appeal of that move be something that the television networks say, yeah, we'll put a little bit, a little bit more money in the pot to, to make sure that this isn't going to cut into the revenues that were already promised to the 14 schools or, I guess, 16 schools that were in the, the initial media rights deal anyway. So again, I'm not saying they won't move. Um, the last, you know, the last move came completely out of nowhere. Um, but what I will say is, I think it would have to be a pretty compelling case, and I don't know that there is one out there at the moment, other than Notre Dame, or potentially if something sparked the ACC into falling apart. Zach, really appreciate you having you on. I'll keep in mind that I guess one benefit from all this realignment is that your flight miles probably will look a little bit better depending on <laughs> where you would go <laughs> down the line. And um, hopefully, you know, when you have your map of the Big Ten, it doesn't change too much um, over the next week like it did the last week and a half or so. But again, thanks for coming on, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. That was Zach Osterman covers IU, all things IU for Andy Starr.